Tonight we're going to study John chapter 21. John chapter 21 gives us the seventh appearance of Christ to his disciples in his post-resurrection ministry. I would like to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 1 with me to begin our study. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, constitute the bridge between the Gospels and the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, now that's only about one page over from John 21, so I notice some of you really turning through all the Bible when it's the next book over. One page, John, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The former treatise, that is the uh, Gospel of Luke, the former trees by Mado Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen of them, how long? How long between his resurrection and his ascension? That's why we call it the 40-day post resurrection ministry, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 40-day post-resurrection ministry. Now, the public life, the life of Jesus on earth is usually divided, can be divided conveniently, into three unequal periods, 30 years preparation from his birth to his public baptism. His public baptism began his public ministry. So from his birth to his baptism, 30 years. That's Luke chapter 3, verse 23. He's about 30 years old when he was baptized. Secondly, his three and a half years public ministry from uh, about uh, October 26 A.D. to about April 30 A.D. We know that from the four Passovers in the Gospel of John. John 2.13, John 5.1, John 6.4, John 13, 1, or really John 13 through chapter 19. Now, assuming that John 5, 1 is a Passover, which some Bible students do not assume, assuming that John 5, 1 is a Passover, we have four Passovers, John 2, John 5, John 6, John 13 to 19. Between those four Passovers, one, two, three years, and he began his ministry about six months before the first Passover. So, October, November, December, January, February, March, six months. April, the first Passover, 27. April, 28, the second Passover. April, 29, the third Passover. And April, 30, the fourth Passover. And he was crucified at Passover season uh, in, perhaps, April 30 AD. We know it was April. Now, there's a lot of discussion debate on the precise year. Some men say 29, some men say 31, some men say 32, and some men say 33. I conclude it's 30. Now, you can take your choice, except if you want to be right, it's 30. <laughs> no, there, there's some division of opinion here. And I studied this for years, and I settled on April 30 AD and I'm too old to go back and try and restudy the problem once again. I'm, I'm happy with that, April 30 A.D. Now, that's the public ministry of Christ, three and one-half years. Now, he was crucified sometime in April, let's say, 30 A.D. And then three days later, he arose on Sunday. From the day of his resurrection until the day of his ascension, there were 40 days. That's the 40-day post-resurrection ministry. From Sunday, the day of his resurrection, until 40 days later, Thursday. And then you take 10 more days and add to that, and you have Pentecost. Three great critical events. The resurrection of Jesus on the first Sunday, the Lord's Day. 40 days later, his ascension into heaven, and 10 days later, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We meet on Sunday for two reasons. Number one, because Jesus arose on Sunday. And number two, because the church was born on Sunday. Sunday was the, is the birthday of the church.
church and the resurrected Jesus. Now, if we met once on Sunday, we wouldn't violate anything in the Bible. The early church probably only met once. Now, before he heaved a sigh of relief on that, they met at about 6.30 or 7 in the evening, and they continued till about 12 o'clock at night. That long evening service. Paul preached, you think I'm long-winded. <laughs> Paul was so long-winded, the man fell out the window. Paul had to go and revive him. You remember that story. And the reason they did is because uh, many of the uh, members of the early church were slaves. And they couldn't get off. They had to work on Sunday. Couldn't get away from their slave masters. You, you say, why didn't they report it to the union? Well, they didn't have any union. And the master in the Greco-Roman Empire, the master had virtual power of life and death over his slave. So if he left, he could kill him and hardly be called to court. So he had to work, and they met on Sunday night. So the hours, not, you know, if we met at 8.30 or at 11, it's indifferent. If we have two services, that's not necessarily supported in the New Testament. Now, if you join the church, and it meets Sunday morning, Sunday night, let me say, and you join it, then you ought to go, see, or find a church where they only meet once on Sunday and join it. But if you join a church and can make it Sunday morning and Sunday night, and you're a member of it, and it meets, then you ought to make up your mind that you're going. When you say, I go Sunday morning, my church, and then I visit around on Sunday night, I don't think that's good and wholesome. Find a church, settle down. If it meets Sunday morning, Sunday night, then support it. You say, I'm, you know, hard, difficult, and tired. Yes, but you've got some influence that you may never know until you get over yonder in heaven that you're going to help by being present. Now, once or twice, three times. Indifferent. But Sunday, yes. How about meeting on Thursday? Well, fine, if you want to come back on Sunday. But Sunday is the day, I believe, established by the resurrection of Jesus, birthday of the church, founded on that, and supported by, especially, by three passages, which we're not going to get into. We hope eventually to get into what we're going to study tonight. But Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2, and Revelation chapter 20, about verse 10. Interesting that Paul, who was hard-pressed to get down to Jerusalem on his third missionary journey, Paul stayed seven days in Troas. No, he was hard-pressed to get down to Jerusalem. He stayed seven days in Troas from Monday until Sunday to attend the breaking of bread service. Now, what is the breaking of bread service? Well, you call it communion, or the Eucharist. The brethren call it, the Plymouth brethren call it breaking of bread. And that's what they called it in the New Testament, along with communion and the table of the Lord and the Lord's Supper. He waited, though under pressure, Paul stayed in the city seven more days so he could meet with them on Sunday morning and attend the breaking of bread service. Yes, I believe that Sunday is the proper day. If your church meets twice uh, on Sunday, then you ought to be there unless you're prevented. You know, there are circumstances that today may prevent it. Sickness, illness, some problem, but I pretty well, any preacher's pretty well heard all the excuses. And there are, I'd say probably 10% are valid. 90% probably are not valid. And television is not valid. So... You support. Now, that's a little plug, and we're going to have to run the clock back a little. But tonight, we're going to study John chapter 21, the resurrection, post-resurrection ministry. Now, as we saw last time, Jesus Christ appeared to his disciples on how many occasions? Ten occasions. On the first Sunday, six. First of all, to Mary Magdalene. Secondly, to the women. Third, to the two Emmaus disciples, fourth to James, his own half-brother, and fifth to the disciples meeting in the upper room. First five, all in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem. 
Then the following Sunday, the second Sunday, the sixth appearance to the 11 apostles and others that were gathered in that same upper room. Thomas was present then. Six appearances within eight days down in Jerusalem and Judea. Then he tells them to go north. And they go north, and up north in Galilee, he meets with his disciples three different times. First of all, um, I said James, I meant Peter on that third appearance. He met, first of all, the seventh appearance with the seven disciples, John chapter 21. Eight, he met with the apostles and over 500 brethren on the mountain in Galilee. Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. Now there's some question whether Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is the same as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. If it's not, then 11 appearances. If it is, and I tend to believe it is, then ten appearances. So that was the eighth one. Then ninth, ninth, he met with James, his own half-brother. Then they came back from Galilee. Of course, he wasn't with them. They took about three days. He got back there in about three seconds, see, in that glorified body. And he came back, and the final appearance, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, really verses 4 to 11, the final appearance on the 40th day in his ascension. Now we studied that last time. We're going to take up tonight John 21, which is the seventh appearance. The seventh appearance of Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 21, verse 1. John 21, verse 1. After these things, that is, after the things of John chapter 20, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself on this wise, in this manner. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Canaan Galilee, and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said unto the others, I'm going to go fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered the ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Now if we skip on down um, to verse 14, the Bible says in verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus manifested himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Now, you say, I thought you said that was the seventh. Well, it is the seventh. But it's the third time in the third time he showed himself to the group, the third group manifestation. The others were to individuals. Here's the third one to a group. The first one on the first Sunday night. The second one on the second Sunday night. And here's the third one to the seven disciples. What can we say, by the way, as to the nature? The Bible says here, manifested. The King James said, show. The Bible says, manifested. Which, uh, which might suggest that he uh, was invisible and he made himself visible in that manifestation. Uh, we simply don't know. What can we say uh, about the resurrection body of Jesus to preface what we're going to look at here? Well, uh, I would say three things. First of all, it was a real body. The body that Jesus had in his resurrection was a real body. You could shake hands with Jesus and get hold of something. If he stood and the sun was shining, his body would cast a shadow. It was a real material body. Second, it was the same body. It wasn't in body. He didn't body. He, he didn't borrow the body of Moses, or he didn't borrow somebody else's body. It was his body. And Romans 8:11, which is an important thing, says that that um, if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus dwells in you, then the spirit of him who raised up Jesus shall also, now you're listening, raise up your mortal body. That means the same body that's put in the grave will be precisely the same body that's raised. Now the question we have to answer is, what do we mean by the word S-A-N-E? <clears throat> Not a material sameness, 
but a personal Savior. I put a rock, as I illustrate it in theology, I put a rock out in the backyard and write MSVC on it. 25 years later, I find that rock, and I hold it up, and I say, that's the same rock. I mean by that, material Savior. The same matter is in that rock. Here's my son, the youngest one. He's 15. 25 years later, perhaps I introduce him to you at 15. 25 years later, you see David once again. And you say, well, despite the passage of time, that is the same boy, now a man, I met at Mid-South Bible College. What do you mean by saved? Not material saved. For doctors tell us we change the material of our bodies every seven years. So not material safe. That's why I say if a lawyer is an atheist, don't write any contract after seven years. The only reason you can write a contract after seven years is if you believe there's something that doesn't change, the soul. Really, to be technical, we change every, all the time. And I'm not the same person materially that I am yesterday. I would like someday to have that point tested in a court of law to see whether a man who denies the existence of a soul, the only permanent thing, could maintain a contract after seven years when the body has changed entirely. We don't mean it was the same boy, David. We mean in that case it's a personal savior. So that body that went down came up in some vegetable, and the cow ate it went, and was eaten in turn and went down again and came up again six times, cannot be the same matter. Because that matter must might have been in six different people. So when we say that it's the same body, we don't mean material sameness, but what kind? Personal. What kind? Now, that's important. You know why? Because agnostics will say, how can the same body be raised? What is the matter of fact? It's gone down into the ground, disintegrated, and come up in a different form, been eaten, gone into another body, gone down again. How can it be the same? We do not maintain that it's a material sameness, but a personal sameness. And as the great theologian William G.T. Shedd said, all that's necessary to an identical body is personal identity. So when I'm raised, I'm not going to come up like Shakespeare. In fact, from the pictures that I see, as bad as I look, Shakespeare's a little worse, see? Now, I'm going to come up, I'm, I'm going to come up the same, but glorified, glorified, fortunately. So the body Jesus had was a real body. You could touch it. It was the same body with the scars on it. Yet third, it was a glorified body. Glorified. Now, that's a mystery. What was involved and what will be involved, we don't know. His body was no longer subject to the present laws of space and time. But here, yonder, in a couple of seconds. How long do you think it took Jesus to get to heaven? Almost instantaneously. Not instantaneously. Or that would mean that his body was omnipresent. Not instantaneously, but almost instantaneously. And apparently, <clears throat> he could manifest that body to the disciples and then suddenly disappear. So that body, though real, was not subject to the present laws of space and time. Now, the importance of that, among many reasons, is that my body is going to be like his, Philippians chapter 3.25. And the closest description to that and is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 42 to 44. We are not going to look at it now. But sometime you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 42 to 44, and it describes the qualities that will mark the resurrection body. And if our resurrection body is like the body of Jesus, that means that his resurrection body were marked by these qualities. Now here's the seventh appearance, an appearance in that resurrection body. He appeared by the Sea of Tiberias. 
the Sea of Tiberias is the same as you probably know as the Sea of Galilee. This was his seventh appearance. He appeared to seven people. Look at verse 2. Then would gather Simon, Peter, and Thomas, called the twin. That's two. Nathaniel, that's three. The two sons of Zebedee, James and John, that's five. And two other of his disciples. Now, who were those other two? We don't know. Nobody knows. Don't come up afterwards and say, you know. See, you don't, because the Bible doesn't tell us. If it had been two apostles, he'd have probably named the two. But he didn't name them. So apparently they were not apostles, simply disciples. And Jesus, it says, verse 1, uh, after these things, Jesus manifested himself with a suggestion perhaps that he made himself visible to them on the shore while they're out fishing. Now, verse 3, Simon Peter said unto the other six, I'm going to go fishing. I don't think there was anything wrong with that. Some people say what well, Simon was going to go back to his occupation he was going to renounce his discipleship. I don't think so. Simon was restless. He wanted something to do. He wanted to keep occupied. So he said, while we're here and time on our hands, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to occupy myself. So I don't find anything here to condemn, for which to condemn Simon Peter. So Simon said, I'm going to go fishing. They said, well, we're going to go with you. So they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. They fished all night, and they caught nothing. Now, I fished down in Mississippi all day and caught nothing. <laughs> a few years ago, I was out fishing with a friend of mine. About 12, 14 years ago, I go fishing about once every two years. And we fished over in Arkansas. And we fished for five hours and didn't catch anything. And a little girl went by about two and a half hours after we were fishing. And she said, hey, fellas, what have you caught? <laughs> well, I said, he's caught nothing. <laughs> and uh, she held up a nice string. About two, three hours later, she came back. What have you caught now? I said, he hasn't yet caught anything. And she held up a longer. Well, they fished all night. What did they catch? Nothing, nothing, nothing. So verse 4, but when the morning just was breaking, the Greek makes it clear, the sun was just rising. Daybreak, we would call it. Because now come Jesus. Jesus stood out on the beach. But his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Lads, do you have any food? Not meat, food. Do you have any food? And of course he meant fish. They answered him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you're going to find something. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fish. And you say, why not knowing that it was not, not knowing that it was Jesus, why did they catch? Well, it was not uncommon, according to the commentators. Not uncommon in those days for a man on the beach to be able to spot a school of fish more clearly than a man out in the boat. So, according to many commentators and those who've been there, uh, a man out on the beach could spot something, and the men on the fish in the boat couldn't. And the man on the beach said, there's a school over yonder, cast, and they would cast and take it. So they didn't know this was the Lord Jesus. The man on the beach said, cast on the other side. So they cast on the other side, and immediately they got such a large catch that they could not pull it into the boat. And John, who's always a little more perceptive, isn't he? That's a nice quality. That's a nice, it's good for a preacher to have a John in his church. He's going to get a doubting Thomas, and he's probably going to get some Corinthian gripers. See? It's nice to have a mind like John, who has a spiritual sensitivity to spot the spiritual aspect of the thing. John did it. Peter went in the tomb first. John went after him, even though John got there first. But it was John who saw, what does the Bible said? Believe. And here's John, verse 7. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the apostle John, the brother James, the author of this book. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Right away, he knew it was the Lord. Right away, his memory back, you know, went back to two incidents. 
One in Matthew 4 and the other in Luke chapter 5. One when the Lord Jesus first called him, leave the net, follow me, you'll become fishers of men. And the second time in Luke chapter 5, when he did almost the same thing as he does here. It's the Lord. Well, very impetuously, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his fisher's coat around him, for he was stripped, not naked. He wasn't out there. They weren't out there fishing naked. He was stripped down to a loincloth, what we would call, let's say today, a swimming suit. Um, a swimming suit or a pair of shorts. He was down to that, stripped. And Peter put his fisher's coat around him. Didn't want to appear that way to the Lord. And he did cast himself into the sea. That's kind of interesting. The only one who could look through the clothes and see him was the Lord. <laughs> so he put some clothes on, see. The one that couldn't were on board. But they were fishing in what we would call swimming shorts. So they wouldn't get tangled. Because they didn't, didn't use those poles, you know, like we do. They used the nets that they cast out. And their outer garments didn't get in the way of casting that net. So Peter put on that outer coat and did cast himself in the sea. And the other disciples came in the, in the little ship. For they weren't far from land, but as it were, 200 cubits, about 100 yards. You fix in your mind a football field. That's about the distance. Now, don't leave your mind on the football field. But if you can, that's about the length, the football field. Dragging the net with fish. They couldn't get it up in the boat, dragging the net with fishes. So as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring of the fish which you now have caught, not to eat. Jesus performed a miracle here, provided the fish and the bread. He didn't go down to the drugstore, didn't go down to Kroger's and buy it. It's a miracle. And as far as the text was concerned, he didn't use some of their fish. He simply wanted them to bring it on land and apparently uh, number it counted to see what the catch was. So Jesus said, bring the fish which you've now caught. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, large ones. 153. That's the mark of an eyewitness, isn't it? The man that wrote that was here. 153. 153 fish. And yet, despite there were so many, the net was not broken. So Jesus said the second command. Come on and eat. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who art thou? Because they knew it was the Lord. They were real silent. <laughs> Jesus then comes and takes bread and gives them the bread. And they saw those pierced hands and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. The third time he showed himself to them as a group the seventh appearance. You notice, by the way, that, um, that there are four commands there, are there not? Four commands of Christ. And their obedience to each command meant blessing. What's the first command in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 6, what does he say? Cast it, that's the first one, verse 6. The second one is verse 10, bring the fish. The third one is in verse 12, come and eat. And the last one, in verse, end of verse 15, and repeated three, two times more, at the end of verse 15 is what? Feed. Four commands. And every time they obeyed Jesus, they were blessed, which is a great principle and on which you can draw the lesson. What is the secret to blessing in the Christian life? Obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is the secret of blessing. It's amazing, remarkable, and often very uh, <clears throat> convicting how uh, simple the basic principles of the Christian life are. We tend to make them confused. We sing a hymn, don't we, sometimes. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's it. The basic, my basic relationship to the Lord Jesus is epitomized in those two words. Trust 
and obey. Trust him and obey him. When I was uh, uh, growing up, and even before I was converted, I came under the influence of a dear lady, a returned Methodist missionary. She loved the Lord. She loved the Word of God. She had served in China for 40 years. A great soul winner. She knew what follow-up work was long before Dawson Trotman got started to navigate. She knew what follow-up work was. She knew what personal discipleship was. And she knew the involvement in, of, of sowing the seed, the lives of children. <clears throat> she came back when she was 65. And uh, she uh, started teaching in the, the Sunday school at the local church. She was too conservative for the church. She spoke of the blood of Christ and the virgin birth and those were strange terms, and so they asked her the next year not to teach. So the following year, instead, she had a class of 12 to 1. Now, how many red-blooded boys are going to go to Sunday school from 9.30 to 10.30, and morning service from 10.50 to 12 o'clock, and then go to a third Bible class? How many? Well... About 15 of us went. About 15. And the reason is, is because I believe it's because we knew that she was giving us the real good. Though unsaved, we sent her. She sowed the word of God into our hearts and souls. And then she took six of us, and once every week, each one of us by ourselves, each one of us by himself, saw Miss Alice Light for 45 minutes. 3 to 3.45, not 2.59, not 3.01, 3 p.m. to 3.45. And she'd read the Bible with me and teach me the lessons and ask me questions, and we'd pray together. That was the great undergirding, and she prayed for me and prayed me in the gospel ministry. From 65 to 83, she taught 300 children every week, so the word of God into them. Once every year, we had a program. And at that program, we would sing at the end, always sing her favorite hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's simple, but it's profoundly simple, and it's true. Obedience is the secret to blessing in the Christian life. Obedience, whether it's to my parents, husband to wife, husband to God, state, law, whatever it may be, obedience is the secret of blessing as God ordains it in his word. Now we come to the next thing in the chapter as you have it on your outline. The next thing in the chapter is found in verses 15 to 23. Verses 15 to 23. That's the meeting of the Lord with his disciples. Following that breakfast, the Lord then does Three things. First of all, he publicly restores Peter. Secondly, he tells Peter what his future is going to be. And then third, he tells Peter to mind his own business and not worry about the Apostle John. All right, let's look at these three. First one is the public restoration of Peter to a place of ministry and leadership. Chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. That's the first one, the public restoration of Peter, the place of ministry and leadership. Let's read these three verses. So when they had dined, when they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, John, lovest thou me more than thee? Peter said unto thee, A Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lamb. So the Lord said to Peter again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter saith to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Shepherd my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he saith unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, Shepherd my sheep. 
Now, here's the personal restoration of Peter to a place of ministry and leadership. Peter had already been privately restored. That was the third appearance of Christ. Here's this public restoration. And Peter needed this, he needed it, and the others needed it. Peter's going to assume the leadership. Who holds the place of leadership in the early church? Acts 1 to 12. Who is it? Peter. Who is it that preaches on the day of Pentecost? Peter. 3,000 are saved. Who is it that faces the officers and speaks to the officers in Acts chapter 4? Peter. Who is it that takes, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 5, pronounces the judgment of God upon Ananias and Sapphira? It's Peter. And who is it that opens the door to Gentiles, the door of faith to Gentiles, in Acts 9.31 to Acts 11.18? Who is it? Peter. Peter is the leader. He could not have been the leader if this dark shadow of his denial still hung over him. Peter had denied the Lord Jesus. Peter had boasted three times. Peter had denied Jesus three times. He was embarrassed. Others knew it. More than that, Peter knew it. And Peter was embarrassed. And Peter knew he couldn't assume that kind of leadership, and the Lord Jesus do it, if that dark cloud still hung over Peter. So the Lord did two things. First of all, he privately appeared to Peter, the third appearance. And privately, on the first day, when Peter was disconsolate and discouraged, the Lord Jesus privately appeared to Peter and privately restored him. But that wasn't enough. So... Here, several days, how long? We don't know. 14, 15, 16, 17 days later, the Lord Jesus appears to these seven. Five of them are apostles. And publicly before the seven, and Peter's one of the seven, the Lord Jesus restores Peter publicly. He asks him the question, Lovest thou me three times? And Peter responds, Yes, Lord, I love thee. Three times. The Lord Jesus said to Peter, Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, shepherd my sheep. Three times. And by that, the Lord Jesus publicly restores Peter to that place of leadership so that Peter is ready, may I say it, Peter's ready for Pentecost. And he's ready for Ananias and Sapphira. And he's ready for the opening of the door uh, to uh, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Three questions by the Lord, three answers by Peter, and three commands. Now, uh, always there come up two questions about this, um, on this, on this passage. One is, um, is there any difference uh, in uh, the end of verse uh, 15, he says, feed my lambs. Feed, bosco, the Greek word is B-O-S-K-O, bosco, feed my lamb. The end of verse 16, the word is not feed, it's shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. Now, is there any difference between the lambs and the sheep? Probably so, maybe, maybe. Maybe the lambs refer to young disciples, whereas the sheep refer to old disciples. And you know you have in your congregation young lambs, and you have some older sheep, and you've probably got some old goats there too, see. But uh, he didn't say anything about the goats, <laughs> but uh, he was being kind. But you have some lambs and some sheep, probably some different. Now, the other question is this, and you probably know it. Is there any difference in the words, uh, any significance in the difference in the words that Jesus uses and with which Peter responds? When the Lord asked the first time, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? He used the word agapao. The noun is agape. When Peter answers him, he used the Greek word phileo. We get the word Philadelphia and philosophy from that word phileo. When Jesus asked him the second time, 
lovest thou me, agapao. And Peter responds again with that word phileo. The third time that Jesus asks him the question, he asks him, he drops down or he uses Peter's word, phileo, phileo. And Peter responds, thou knowest all things. You know my heart, Lord. Thou knowest better than I, even though my actions may betray it at times. Thou knowest that I phileo thee. Now the question is, is there some difference between agapao and phileo? Well, the answer succinctly is that we will probably never know until we get to heaven. But many times, great sermons are based on this difference. And there may not be. And I'm not going to go into pros and cons of it. The great commentaries are divided on this, and the question is, who am I to settle what the great commentaries are confused on? And the answer is, I'm not. But it's interesting, is it not? It's interesting, is it not? Verse 17. Verse 17. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, phileo. See, Jesus uses a different word this time. In verse 15, agapao. Verse 16, agapao. Verse 17, phileo. Simon, son of Jonas, verse 17, phileo me, lovest thou me. And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Now, look in the middle of verse 17. He said unto him, the third, what time? What time? Third time. Third time. But he used a different word. So apparently in the mind of Jesus, there wasn't a significant difference on this occasion between agapao and phileo. John has a love for the use of synonyms. I do also. When I write, the old rule is, don't use the same lively verb twice in the same paragraph. Now, you've got to use the the and the was and so on more than once. But if you use a, an unusual word once in a paragraph, don't use it again in the same paragraph. That was the old rule of grammar. And we try to adopt synonyms, don't we? So if we use the word elder, and the people know what that means, the next word means, the next time you use the word presbyter. John has an affection for the use of synonyms. And sometimes great sermons are built on distinctions in words that may not really be there. And this is one of them. Maybe, may not be. The Bible doesn't simply say, and the Lord Jesus doesn't tell us the reason. But anyway, it's interesting to sum it up. How many denials was there, were there by G Peter? Three denials by Peter. Three denials. How many affirmations of his love for Christ were there? Three affirmations. And how many commands? Three of them. Three denials. Three affirmations of three denials by Peter. Three affirmations by Peter of his love for Christ. And then to restore him to leadership, three times Peter was commissioned. May I point out one thing before we move on? And it's this. And I hope you'll all listen. Love for Jesus Christ, we learn here, even if we may not be able to decide the distinction of the verbs, we learn here that love for Christ is the basic sine qua non the basic requirement for Christian service. Love for Jesus Christ is the basic requirement for Christian service. And I'm always confronted, we are always confronted, any servant of the Lord is confronted with the question, do I love Christ? Am I serving here because I love Christ and in obedience to his will? And if I'm not here because I love Christ, then the work is going to grow very tedious. At times, the work is a little tedious. Anybody that tells you he's been preaching for 30 years and it doesn't get tedious at times is, uh, you know, I wonder where he's been. It does get a little tedious at times. See? And occasionally you'd like to say, well, maybe there's another place. Well, then as you think about it, pray about it, you have the conviction that God has placed you here. 
But if the thing that prompts me is not a love for Christ, then it won't keep me there. Well, you say, what about a love for souls? The secret to a love for souls is a love for Christ. Jesus said, feed my sheep after he elicited from Peter that Peter loved him. When Peter loved Christ, then he was ready to shepherd the sheep and to feed the lambs. He manifested his love for Christ by doing, you said, I'm so glad that you love the Chinese so much that you're going to spend your life in China. And I said to you, Dr. Schofield, that I wasn't going to China because I love the Chinese, but because I love Christ and in obedience to his will. But she said, Dr. Schofield, a strange thing, a wonderful thing has happened. When I went to Chinese, I went to China, not because I love the Chinese, but because I love Christ. I found that as I went and as I ministered, as I served, the Lord gave me a love for the Chinese. In a few months, I'm going back to China, but I'm going back for two reasons now. First, because I love Christ. And secondly, because I love the Chinese. Love for Christ is the great basic quality, not security, not the plaudits of men, not to be involved in social service. Not because I like to do good to my neighbor. Now, all these things are good. I'm not reflecting on them, but they're all good. But what I'm saying is the only motive that will keep me faithful and true and in the harness and happy for the Lord is that I love Christ. So the question that I have to face and that you have to face in your Christian work is, do I truly love Christ? That's the wellspring of Christian ministry. And Jesus Christ put his finger on the juggler vein of Christian service when he asked Peter this question. Now we go to the second thing. And that's found in verses 18 and 19. The second thing is the prophecy of Peter's future, especially his future death. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord Jesus says to Peter, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Peter, when you wast young. Now, Peter was still pretty young. See? <laughs> I don't suppose he is much over 32, 33. But uh, the Lord's looking from the viewpoint of the future. The Lord is putting himself ahead about 30 years, see. And then looking back and saying, When thou wast young, you girded yourself, you fastened a belt around your waist by yourself. Nobody else to help you with that. And secondly, you went where you wanted to go. You another, you, you went where thou walkest whither thou wouldst. That is, you went where you wanted to go. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee where you don't want to go. This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, the Lord said unto him, what did he say? Don't worry about it. No use worrying about it. And don't try and run away from it. Follow me. Now here's a prophecy of Peter's death. Tradition tells us that he was crucified. This might be a prediction of that, except for the fact that he puts the stretching of the hands first and the girding of the belt second. And normally we'd think it's just reverse. But that may not be significant. This is a prophecy of Peter's death. And tradition tells us that Peter was crucified and crucified upside down. Whether he actually was, we're not for sure. But we know this. This is a prophecy of Peter's death. When Jesus said that's what's going to happen, then he said to Peter, your responsibility is to follow me. Don't worry about that. That's going to happen. You follow me. Well, Peter's got his future mapped out. He knows one day he's going to die in a way he doesn't want to like to die. Now, you know what we all do when once we get our own things settled? We worry about other people. So Peter said in verse uh, uh, chapter 21, verse, verse 20, 
Peter turning about sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrays thee? That's this beloved disciple. Peter, seeing him, seeing that beloved disciple, said to Jesus, Lord, what's this man going to do? What's your plan for him? Jesus said unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what business is it of yours? Your business is follow thou me. You've got enough work to take care of yours. Don't worry about what's going to happen to John. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple, the beloved disciple, should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to be? Now, John, who wrote this, the beloved disciple of whom Peter is speaking, I think you all know by now, is the one that wrote this. And the rumor circulated that John wasn't going to die and that the Lord Jesus said that John wasn't going to die. So John wanted to get the air cleared here. So he prints this, not a retraction, not a retraction because the Bible never made that mistake. But unlike some newspapers, he corrected what was wrong. That rumor had gotten out that he wasn't going to die until Jesus came. And that would be a mistake if it were true because Jesus, uh, John died and the Lord hasn't come. So he corrected that rumor and said that's not what he said. What he said was, if, if the Lord will is that he tarries till I come, then he will. If not, then he won't. But that's not your worry, Peter. Your worry is to follow thou me. Don't worry about others, their responsibility. Worry, worry only about yours. And then we have the conclusion of the book, verses 24 and 25. The conclusion to the Gospel of John. We've got three things in John chapter 21, have we not? The first one is the miracle, verses 1 to 14. The second one is the meeting of Jesus with the disciples, verses 15 to 23. Now the conclusion. Let's read it together. This is the disciple. This one, the one of whom Peter was speaking, that beloved disciple, that beloved disciple whose name is never mentioned in the Gospel of John. The author doesn't mention his name. This. The emphasis is on that first word. What is the first word in your text? This, this, the man of whom I've been speaking. The man of whom I've been speaking. The man of whom Jesus said, if I will that he stays until I return, so be it. This, this is the man, this is the man, this is the disciple, which testified of these things and wrote these things down. John did not use a private secretary. John did not use an amanuensis. Paul did on occasion. John did. He testified to these things, and he wrote these things down. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, who is the we here? We don't know. Who is the we here? See, it says in verse 24, we know that his testimony in the gospel of John is true. Who is the we here? We don't know. Maybe it was the Ephesian elder. By this time, John was fellowshipping with the church in Ephesus. And it may have been the elders in that church that put verse, this, this. Maybe John asked them to put this in to confirm what he had written. So they wrote, this man is the one that wrote this book. Matter of fact, uh, matter of fact he, he indicates to us by this two things that this man, this beloved disciple, is the author of this book. Now, there's been a great debate the last 200 years on who wrote the Gospel of John. Um, that's no problem for me, but some people are troubled. And you get liberal seminaries, they'll deny the Johannine authorship of the Gospel of John. They used to say <clears throat> that John wasn't written until about 150 A.D. Then, a few, several years ago, they discovered a little bit of papyrus, and on it had part of the Gospel of John. And by the modern methods of dating, carbon dating, they were able to date that piece of papyrus to about 115. 
115 to 120 A.D. That was found down in Egypt. So it took, we suppose, 10 or 15 years for that thing to be written and to be copied and get on down to Egypt. So that brings us back to about 100 A.D. And we say that this book was written probably about 95 A.D. by the Apostle John. And I have no trouble with the Johannine authorship. And these witnesses had no trouble with the Johannine authorship. They believed that the beloved disciple, John, was the author of this book. And I simply assume that a man who lives in the first century and was a companion of John ought to know a little bit better than a man who lives in the 20th or the 19th century. And that John wrote it. Then the second thing they say is they confirm his reliability. That what he wrote is true and authentic. He's the author. Then John probably took the pen out of their hands and wrote the last verse. And he says in the last verse, there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they should be written, every one of them, I suppose, now he doesn't say it would, he says, I suppose, here's a hyperbole, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the book that should be written, amen. And he's finished with his book, and we're finished with our studies. Notice, by the way, in verse 23, something that's important. John says, first, there's vastly more about Jesus than what we know in this gospel, or what we know in the four gospels. Vastly more about Jesus. Now, what we know is true and sufficient. When, when I teach systematic theology, we... The question of can we have a valid, true knowledge of God? Isn't that right? Yes, Terry knows that. He's a student. When we study theology, we ask the question, is God knowable? Now, there are a lot of men who say no. God is not knowable. You have to take a leap of faith. The answer of the Bible to that is that, yes, we can have a limited knowledge of God. That God cannot be known extensively. Nobody can have an all-encompassing knowledge of God. We can only have a little knowledge of God. That's obvious. But what we do know is first true, valid and true, that what the Bible tells us about God answers to what God really is. It's true. And secondly, it's sufficient for all my needs. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. It's sufficient, Peter tells us, for life and holiness. It's sufficient for salvation and for holy living. See? It doesn't answer some questions. Doesn't, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't put together the problem of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Now, what it does say is you ought to struggle a little bit, but it doesn't solve it. And a lot of questions that it doesn't solve. A lot of questions I'd like to have answers to, but I don't. But what I do have in the Bible, what I do have is all that I need to know for salvation and for holiness of life. 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 and 3. John says there's vastly more. I didn't put it all in. Are you listening? But what John did put in, he was guided by the Holy Spirit in selecting exactly what should be put in. Or as old Dr. Harry Rimmer used to say, the Holy Spirit was the superintending editor. And he put in exactly what needed to go in, nothing more, nothing less, and without error. When the students learn a definition of inspiration, it ends by saying, the one that I have, without addition, without omission, and without error. See, the Holy Spirit guidance in the selection. And third, John tells us the one grand purpose of the guidance of the Holy Spirit and of his writing the book, John chapter 20, 30 and 31, is to lead us to personal faith in Christ. What a tragedy it would be, would it not, if some of us had studied all this year or all the two years and still were strangers 
for the grace of God. What a tragedy. That's a great tragedy when you go to church for 15 years. Never trust the Lord. What a tragedy to be to study the gospel that's intended to lead us to faith in Christ and not come to faith in Christ. May I close with this suggestion? May I close with this suggestion? Two. First one is this. May I suggest that you study chapter 21, that you study chapter 21 along the lines of lessons for Christian service. There are three basic lessons of Christian service, and I normally approach it this way. The first one, the first one is the nature of Christian service. Fishing, fishing for the souls of men. That's the nature of Christian service. Number two is the resource for Christian service. They fished all night, what they catch? Then they listened to him and they obeyed him, and their nets were full. What did the Lord say in John 15, verse 4, verse 5? Without me, you can do very little. Nothing. What is my resource? God himself. The nature? Fishing for the souls of men. The resource? God himself. And the third one? What is the basic motive in Christian service? Love for Jesus Christ. Love for Christ. May I suggest that you study it that way. Now we're finished.